Jesus calls Levi and eats with the sinners. Verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name, by the name of Levi, sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who be belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 31, Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, uh, Johan, for that. Uh, before I begin the service, or the sermon, um, I'd just like to say that after the service, or the sermon, I will have, uh, or we will have, a time of questions. And if you look at your bulletin, you will see a phone number there underneath the text. And if you have any questions after the service, you feel free to text them even during the service. You can fire them over to, to my phone right here, so you'll probably hear a vibration. It's fine. And uh, so if you, like I say, if you have any questions, definitely feel free to ask them after the service. So now, <clears throat> our passage today, Luke 5, Levi, Levi the tax collector. Uh, Luke 5 is, I think, somewhat of a famous passage. And it begins <clears throat> with Jesus walking by the booth of a tax collector. This tax collector's name is Levi. He's otherwise known as Matthew in the other Gospels. So the story is repeated there. And Levi's job is to sit at this booth and collect taxes or customs duties from boats. His booth, if you, learn, if you read the other Gospels, his booth is on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And so when boats came in, to the edge of the sea from across the lake, they would have to stop at Levi's booth and pay a tax to land their cargo. And so I think what's... Jesus comes up to this man and he, he sees this man at a booth. And now for this whole story to make sense, I think we have to know what a tax collector was. And once we know that, then the whole thing story will flow out of that. So let's talk about the tax collector. You see, a tax collector in that time was not like your local CRA or IRS agent. They weren't like you would see in Canada today. You're honest, you can take them to court if they, if they make a mistake, all this sort of stuff. No, no, no. See, Levi's job was sort of like being a border guard or a toll booth employee, except that the tax collectors were notorious for being corrupt. The tax collectors routinely used their position and authority to extort extra taxes on, and bribes from people. The best modern example would be like having a toll booth on the 403. Except that every time you come into the, the toll booth on the 403 to pay a toll, you have to pay the toll and you have to pay whatever bribe 
the toll booth employee decides to charge on top of the toll. Right? That's what Levi was doing. And it gets worse. Most people could stomach a tax or a toll if they knew that the tax was going to improve the highway. Right? Or if the tax went to the health care that you were going to use or the education for your children. Taxes, that's okay. But Levi didn't collect taxes for good causes like health care and education. No, no, no. The ruler of Israel at that time wasn't so enlightened to pay for things like that. King Herod, the ruler at that time, and his Roman backers spent a great deal of the money they raised from the taxes on their lavish lifestyle and on soldiers. And the soldiers that they... The taxes paid soldiers of the Roman legions. And the Roman legions were used to oppress the people. Because the Jewish people did not want to be ruled by the Romans or Herod. But they were forced by the soldiers. And so the Jewish people were forced to pay the taxes that paid the very people that oppressed them. Right? And there was nothing people could do about it. And so... There's even more than that. Some of you might say that if a toll booth attendant threatened to charge you a toll, you could always turn around, back away, and drive the other way, right? Not so fast. The tax collectors were known to hire thugs. If you refused to pay the extra bribe, they could threaten you with some sort of extortion or some sort of thuggish person might knock at your door next week. Right? And it's worse than that. Remember, Levi lived in a small Jewish town. The corrupt toll booth attendant may have been your neighbor. He may have been someone that you grew up with. He may have been someone that you knew your whole life and was a fairly good person until he sold out for the money that became, came from being a tax collector. And I, I'm making this extended introduction for, for a very important reason, right? Levi is a person who's hated by the Jewish people. And he's hated for very good reasons. He works for the oppressive authorities. He steals money from people using the soldiers to back him up. He's kind of a thug. The tax collectors were kind of like a government-supported mafia, complete with extortion and thugs. The best modern example would be kind of like having a government hire the Corleone family from the Godfather to collect taxes. These were not nice people. They were unsavory. You and I would not have liked the tax collectors. And that is why the beginning of this passage is so shocking. Because the beginning of this passage, Jesus goes to the most unsavory, thuggish, extortionist of all and says to him, follow me. And in these two little words, we learn a great deal about who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. We learn, and this is the theme of this sermon, that Jesus came to, for sinners too, not just for nice, nice people. Jesus' gospel is for everyone, sinners too. Tax collectors, prostitutes, mafia hitmen, ISIS soldiers, crack addicts, and the homeless. It's for everyone. If he could call Levi, he can call anyone. And those two little words, follow me, are the proof. And that's the theme for today. Jesus 
Good news is for sinners, not just the righteous. And I say this, and, and I could even start with this. If you're here today and you think that you're unworthy of Jesus, I encourage you to read this passage again and again and meditate on what it is to be a tax collector. Many people think that their past sins disqualify them from following Jesus. They think that things like their past sexual experiences disqualify them. Or maybe they think they've lived a life full of too many lies. Or maybe they've mistreated or abused the people around them. And they think that there's no way they could be a child of Jesus. But the message of follow me is clear right from the outset, and it will follow through the whole passage. No matter what anyone ever tells you or how people treat you, if Jesus could call someone like Levi, he can call you too. And the only thing you need to do is do what Levi did next. Levi, when he was called by Jesus, did two things without hesitation. One, the first thing, he gets up. When Jesus calls, we have to respond. It's true that Jesus calls by true grace without any merit of our own. It is his spirit that changes our hearts to receive grace. But in the process of conversion, humans are not passive. When Jesus calls, you have to get up. You've got to follow. And Levi doesn't just get up, but he does something else. He also leaves everything behind. And in effect, Levi is saying that nothing in his former life is more important than following Jesus. Levi gave up a profitable tax booth, one that would likely have been filled easily by another greedy man. He had all the money he could ever want. Well, maybe not, but he had all, it was a profitable business. Levi gave up his source of cash. There was a real cost to his decision. It cost Levi something to follow Jesus, but he did not hesitate and so we have a man who gets up and leaves everything behind. And this is how the passage starts. Boom! Jesus walks up to a sinner, a person, a thuggish extortionist. Boom! Follow me! And the man gets up and follows. And that's the first shock of the passage. And you do need to appreciate the shock of what just happened. It truly is shocking. And Levi later becomes one of Jesus' 12 disciples, later known as the apostles. Levi, later known as Matthew, became one of the pillars of the early church. This was a man who lived a long life of service to Jesus Christ. Most people, most scholars believe he wrote the gospel of Matthew. He went from tax collector to writer of one of the gospels. It's a powerful story of grace. But I think one thing we should do is we, we should understand that in this story, Levi is us. Think about the circumstances. Levi is a despised, corrupt person. We are broken, evil, corrupt people. Levi was told to follow Jesus. Every one of us is told to follow Jesus. If you're new here at Grace Valley, I can make it clear to you right now. Follow Jesus. We're called every Sunday to follow Jesus. Levi got up and left everything behind in order to follow, right? And here's where we put the question to you. What do you need to leave behind to follow Jesus? 
Is there something that you just can't drop to move forward? I don't want to labor the point. So this is the first shock. Levi is called by Jesus. And then we reach the second shock in the story. Levi doesn't just get up and follow Jesus. He does a third thing that's striking. Levi throws a party. And he invites all of his friends to see Jesus, his unsavory tax collector friends. The words are, Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. And who are Levi's friends exactly? Well, we've talked about the tax collectors. The the government-supported mafia, the extortionists, the people who took bribes every day. And we can only imagine what, see, there's tax collectors and others. That's the words in, in the scripture. Who are the others? Well, my educated guess is that these were other social outcasts, like prostitutes, criminals, other such people. One thing I can guarantee is that these people at partying with Levi at Levi's house, they weren't nice, happy, well-ordered, smiling Christians from the choir. Choir people are great people, right? They're the best. These were not the people Jesus was hanging out with, right? But Jesus doesn't hesitate. He goes and sits at Levi's house. And I guess the best example I can think of, and it's not perfect, It's as if Jesus came to Hamilton and went to the local gang clubhouse. I mean, where I grew up in B.C., the local gang-owing joint was known as Cheers. Everyone knew it was owned by the Hells Angels. Because of that fact, it it attracted the meanest bunch of crooks around and the kind of woman who hang out with people like that. These were not nice people. Nobody who valued their safety or their reputation went there. I can't say that that's what Levi's house looked like exactly, but I can imagine it looked a little bit like that. This was not a nice place. These weren't nice people. They had done bad things. It wasn't, these weren't just a group of people that, you know, shoplifted every now and then. No, this, this, it was worse. These were not nice people. And so Jesus, hey, he's got no problem with this. No problem. Doesn't record. There's no record of any sort of complaint on Jesus or resistance of any kind. Okay. But Jesus may have done this, but he's not the only person watching this scene or in part of this scene. There's a group of people that really don't like this. Really, really don't. The religious leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, had been following Jesus around. They've been investigating Jesus. It started in the previous passage where Jesus healed the paralytic. The Pharisees are standing near the house of Levi, and they see Jesus go in. And they think, what is he doing? How could someone who claims to be a religious teacher be with people like that? They say this. They grumble to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why are you doing this? These people are terrible. You're trying to be a good person. How could you eat with these people? They grumbled and complained. And the Pharisees asked this question to Jesus' disciples, not to Jesus. In a roundabout way, what they're really saying is, why do you follow a teacher who associates with unsavory people? What kind of teacher does this? Wouldn't you, disciples, prefer to follow a teacher who associated with great and famous people 
Why are you following this man? And Jesus responds to the Pharisees with two very carefully chosen sentences that say a lot. And his response perfectly illuminates the motives of the Pharisees. The first sentence is this. It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. It's a little bit of a riddle. Although I think we should make it quite clear. I think he's really saying those who think that they're good and righteous in this life have no need of what Jesus has to offer. As C.S. Lewis once said, Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It has nothing, as far as I know, to say to people who do not know they have done anything to repent of and who do not feel they need forgiveness. And in the case of the Pharisees, there was no need for a doctor. They already had everything that they needed. They had their own pride, high standing in the eyes of the people, and they had considered themselves the authority on the Old Testament law. When it came to the Jewish religion, nobody knew more, nobody worked harder, and cared more about following the law than the Pharisees. They were a religious par excellence. They spent their whole lives studying the minutiae of the law. And the effect was that the Pharisees became guilty of sort of an empty religion based on works rather than grace. The Pharisees thought that the path to righteousness was based on how well they could obey the law. But the harder, the harder they worked at obedience, the better a person they could become. But a religion of works and law obedience inevitably starts to lack something. When you spend all of your time trying to obey the laws, the tendency, not always, but the tendency is to forget to actually spend time loving people. The indicator of this kind of false religion is a complete lack of love, mercy, and mercy, faithfulness, the sort of bigger issues of the law. When Jesus says, what's the second great commandment? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the Pharisees were forgetting about that, that, that law. The law, the rules have become more important than the people around them. And at this point, I say, before we condemn the Pharisees, I think we should take a close look at ourselves. Jesus directed his words towards the Pharisees in the moment, but they've been recorded as timeless for all people. In our passage today, I think Jesus is attacking a certain pattern of thinking. I think to which I think all of us are vulnerable. It's a pattern of thinking in which people think that there are only good people and bad people. Good people become good because of what they do. And bad people are bad because they do not do the good things that good people do. Good people go to the right church. They have the right family, the right job. They say the right things. They send their children to the right schools. Perhaps they live in the right neighborhoods. And they have the right friends. Above all, good people never show that they struggle with sin. 
Because to be vulnerable will be to show that they're not a good person. Now, many of the things I've listed are good things in themselves. We don't need to apologize for them. That's not the point. The problem with outwardly good people becomes abundantly clear in their dealings with what they would describe as bad people. To people who consider themselves to be good, spending time with bad people, that is, people who are disreputable, people who openly struggle with sin, people who have failed in some area of life, are people we think are beneath the gospel. Good people don't associate with bad people unless they absolutely have to. This is because bad people might contaminate the good person. Because goodness comes from the external things that you do and are. And that's because when someone starts to think that they're a good person, it is only a matter of time before they start thinking of other people as bad people. C.S. Lewis has a great quote for this too. Those who do not think about their own sins make up for it by thinking incessantly about the sins of others. And why is this thinking so bad? Why is this whole way of this thought process a bad thing? It's a bad thing because of what Jesus says. It is, only, it is the sick that he has come for. The sick need the doctor, not the righteous. The problem is that there are no good people. There are only bad people. The problem comes when we think we are good for any reason that does not include Jesus Christ. The disease of sin infects all of us. And it is not healed or by any tool or path of treatment that is available to us other than Jesus. Think about it. Imagine you are diagnosed with cancer. After a few months, the cancer starts to spread throughout your body, so much so that you are only given a few months to live. Then imagine a doctor comes to you with a revolutionary treatment that could heal you. 100% chance. How do you respond? Well, if you're Levi the tax collector, you would immediately start the treatment. And you throw a huge party to celebrate your imminent recovery. But the Pharisees, instead of thanking the doctor for the revolutionary treatment, instead decided that their treatment was better. Then proceeded to mock the doctor, scheme to kill him, and eventually nail the doctor violently to a cross. They spurned the doctor, arguing that their treatment for the cancer was better. And all the doctor wanted to do was heal the patient. He came down from heaven to sit in the hospital room with the patients to sit by their side, to listen to their ills and their troubles. He loves the patience. But the Pharisees, when Jesus came into the room, the Pharisees spit in his face, mocking him and killing him. It was shocking and offensive. The good news is that Jesus didn't leave the hospital because a few patients spit in his face. The good news is he stayed. And he says it's the next sentence that he gives. The first sentence was, I have not come, or the second sentence is this, the last part of our, our text. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And he's saying something 
very clear here. And he's also saying something deeply comforting. These words should be the sweetest words we've ever heard. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This statement provides immense hope. It sounds a little bit difficult, but it's not. This is an incredibly powerful, hopeful sentence. This sentence tells us that Jesus is not here on earth to just hang around. He's here to do something incredibly powerful for you and I. The great hope and comfort is that Jesus comes to save sinners, which we are. As Paul says in the first chapter of 1 Timothy, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. By saying he comes to heal sinners, he's saying he came for you and me. That's what that means. Metaphorically, Levi and the tax collectors, called sinners, they represent all of us. We're the tax collectors. Jesus, when Jesus ate at the table of the tax collectors, it was a sign, a powerful statement saying that he's willing to eat with you. This is a huge thing. It's an immense comfort that Jesus feasted with Levi. And that he did not hesitate. It's words of comfort for us who are downtrodden by sin and weakness. It's words of comfort for us today who only know how our sin too well. It's the point for all of us, for, for us who struggle with sin, those of us who have a history that's painful and shameful. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for those who wonder if they are ever worthy of God's grace. He came to call us. You don't need the proper image or reputation. You don't need to look strong on the outside. You don't need to hide your pain. You don't need to apologize for feeling sad or wounded. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not only for the Canadian middle class, but for every type of people, rich Poor, with a home, without a home, dark past, without a dark past, former gang members, prostitutes, all manner of people, every tribe and nation. It is in the depths of our sin when the the label sinner really sticks. That's where the grace of Christ, the great physician sticks. That's when the grace is most fully visible. It's when we know the depth of our disease that the doctor is most needed. It says in Isaiah 53, verse 5, he, But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was upon him, and we are healed by his wounds. We are healed by the wounds of the doctor in a stunning reversal. Our Savior heals us with the stripes of the flogging on his back and with the nails that were punched through the hands, hands and feet The great physician does not heal with medicine or surgery, but with his own blood, through death and resurrection, through his sacrifice and his pain. Through his death, Jesus Christ cured the disease that grips our souls with its long, gnarly fingers. And don't be mistaken, 
The cure is real, it's fully effective, and it's powerful. And it's administered to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The doctor gave his life to make a cure possible. He's the only cure, the only true healing. We can't heal ourselves. And as we walk through this life, we can know that through him we are put on a path of treatment by the Holy Spirit toward the day when the treatment will be complete, the day when we are brought into heaven to be with him for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you to praise your holy name. We praise you for bringing your son Jesus Christ down to this earth to sacrifice for us. Lord, we don't deserve any of it. We are sinners. We don't deserve grace. We don't deserve the death of Jesus for our sake. But Jesus in this passage today is very clear. He came to save us from our sins. He came for sinners. And Lord, we glorify your name for such a powerful gospel. And may this gospel reach inside of us and change us. And may we respond to it with ever greater obedience welcoming your grace into our hearts so that we change and looking forward to the end of times when we are changed by your gospel forever in heaven into the most beautiful place prepared for a man, a place in which words cannot describe. And Lord, may we look forward to that place with joy and with hope. And Lord, this we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.